you for this. I'm, we've got a very exciting few minutes planned for you now. The speakers, the preachers are, are all lined up there. Don't worry, Reese, you're not one of them. <laughs> you look a bit worried. Um, and I've got five minutes. They've all got five minutes to do what they're going to say, to say what they're going to say. And I've got five minutes as well. So I've started my stop clock, just so you know. Um, okay. We're going to be talking today and celebrating something called the Protestant Reformation. Now, some of you will be thinking, yes, I love the Protestant Reformation. I'm glad we're celebrating it. it its actual birthday was a couple of weeks ago. Some of you will be like, what's the Protestant Reformation? I've never heard of that. And it doesn't sound that interesting. But whether you like it or not, um, which you should like it, it was an important, a massively important part of church history and actually, as a result of the Reformation, our understanding of how we can relate to God and how we can relate to one another is completely being transformed. And so it's a really important moment in history. And so that's why we want to talk about it. And the five that are going to come and speak are basically going to talk about five amazing truths that were remembered or brought back to life through the Reformation, and uh, as we go through, through the, the morning, you'll, you'll understand a bit more about what I'm saying. So I'm going to do a little bit of history just so that you get the reason why the Reformation needed to happen and how it got kicked off, and then the guys will come up and do their bits. So in the Middle Ages, um, the, the whole of Western Europe, really, or sorry, the whole of the Western world was kind of, it had a superpower. And that superpower, it wasn't an, an empire like the Roman Empire or the British Empire. It was actually the church, the Roman Catholic Church. And they had a lot of sway, a lot of power over all of Europe and going into the rest of the world. But there was also widespread corruption, pre pretty kind of bad theology and, and greed and all sorts of other stuff going on within the church at the time. And so it wasn't using the power that it had for the greatest reasons or for the greatest purposes. And so actually, instead of the church being a place where hope and life and the goodness and the good news of Jesus Christ was being taught to people, it was a place that turned into a, quite an impressive place, a place where people were scared of God and not feeling free to go to, to get to know God. So it wasn't the greatest time. And then 500 years ago, on the 13th of October, 1517, a young German monk by the name of Martin Luther, he took a piece of paper and he wrote 95 different reasons why he believed the church was in trouble. And uh, he, uh, he, took, he took this piece of paper and he nailed it to a door of a church in a place called Wittenberg. Now, the best thing about the place Wittenberg is you spell it with a W, Wittenberg. But then when you say it with a V, Wittenberg, you just sound German straight away. Try it out, Wittenberg. You sound like a German kind of philosopher or something, Wittenberg. So uh, I'm sure there was other good things about it. But uh, that wasn't a particularly unusual thing for people to do. So um, people would just nail arguments and questions to the door of particular churches in those times. It was a way of starting debates. Um, but Martin Luther would never have realized the impact that his list would make on the whole of the world because it started a, a series of uh, kind of happenings which resulted in something that became known as the Protestant Reformation. 
And that's significant because that was the moment where the worldwide church kind of split into two. You had Roman Catholicism and you had the Protestants. So that was a significant moment in world history. Now, Luther never wanted to split the church. He wanted to reform the church. He wanted the church, it had, it had gone a bit wrong, and he wanted to get it right. He wanted to get it back to its Christian, biblical roots. Um, but the church was in a bad place. As I've said, there was a lot of corruption going on, and, um, and the, the abuse of power was pretty rife. The church at the time owned about a third of the land in Europe. Just think about how powerful the church was. It owned a third of the land in Europe. The Pope assumed authority over every king in Europe. And the church had the, the power and the, the persuasion to be able to choose who would be king and who would be taken off their throne. And so it was a pretty uh, significant place. And Martin Luther would look at the church and say, this is not what it should have been like. This is not what Jesus talked about when he talked about the church. This is not the kind of church that the Apostle Paul envisioned. And so he, he said, we're going to go back and find out what it is that God wants from his church. And out of the Reformation came these five principles. They were sola scripture, which means the Bible alone is the highest authority. Sola fide, which means uh, we are saved by faith alone. Sola gracious, we are saved by the grace of God alone. So, uh, solius Christus, Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And soli Dio Gloria, which means we live for the glory of God alone. And these are the five things that we're going to be looking at today. I'm going to invite Richard to come up and give us our first one. So can you give him a massive round of applause as he comes? Amen. Hallelujah. Well, who has a Bible here today? I mean, if you haven't got one, don't worry. Or you might have a mobile phone or whatever. But who has more than two Bibles? Who has more than five Bibles? A lot of us, right? We have so many Bibles, and we take it for granted, don't we, that we have a Bible. I know I do. I've got a, a cupboard of Bibles. And, um, and, but going back 500 years ago, that wasn't the case. 500 years ago, you couldn't get the Bible. In fact, if you think about the information age, we think we live in the, in the information age. But actually, just before Martin Luther, that was when the information age really started because that was when they had the Gutenberg printing press. There weren't even any books before then. So it was when Martin Luther started to have books that he could start to research and study, and he studied Greek and Hebrew, and then he looked into what the Bible actually said. Because at the time, 500 years ago, there was only, the Bible was only in the hands of a few people. And those people were very powerful. Um, they were like the elite of the day. So they were rich. They, they spoke the language. The Bible was in Latin. It wasn't in English. It wasn't in any other language. So if you didn't speak Latin and have access to a certain library, you didn't have any Bible. And so that meant that the church had extreme power, and they could just say, well, this is what the Bible says. So in other words, if you want to know what the Bible says, you have to come to me, and I'll tell you what it says. But you can't go and read it for yourself. Can you imagine today if we all had to go to um, Paul and, uh, you know, and Vic and say, you're the, the one who can tell me what the Bible says, but you don't have your own Bible? Can you imagine? Um, uh, <laughs> 
whether so that that's why you know that's why um, Martin Luther came along and he posted those um, they were just for debate he put them on on like the church notice board at the time and said um, I've studied the Greek and the Hebrew and I've noticed that these things that the church is doing are not in the Bible so we're in trouble and it started a debate so then that's why one of the things was um, sola scriptura I'm not speaking in tongues. That means, that means by Scripture alone. So the Bible first. So the Bible must be first. And so he said the Bible should be the primary source, the first and final source for all Christian, Christian teaching and lifestyle. And the Bible is sufficient. And, so, and traditions not supported in the Bible are false. So there was the truth and there was fake. It's the same as today, isn't it? There's the truth and there's fake. And then the Bible's the final authority, and the Bible is infallible. In other words, the Bible is perfect and without errors. So at the time, the church was relying on tradition rather than the Bible. They had all sorts of things that they were doing. So, um, um, so Luther, but Luther was not against, against authority. He supported authority in the church, but it had to be submitted to the word of God. Amen. So he wasn't against leaders, and he wasn't against spiritual leaders exercising spiritual leadership. That's not what he, he was saying. He was saying that whatever the Bible actually shows us how a church should be led, and it, and it sets down as elders, there's, there's pastors, prophets, and um, a fivefold ministry. So, um, uh, and I think this was just the start of the Reformation, John Calvin continued it, and I'll just read one thing from the Geneva Confession. It says, um, he said, first, we affirm that we desire to follow Scripture alone as the rule of faith and religion without mixing it with any other things which might be devised by the opinion of men apart from the Word of God. And then, but of course, the Bible should interpret the Bible. So let's go back to the Bible. The Bible says, doesn't it, in 2 Timothy 3, 5, uh, 3 15, 16, uh, when Paul said to Timothy, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And he says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all I want to say to us today is we've got so many Bibles and do we take it for granted and how important is the Bible in your life today? Amen. Oh yeah, um, I want to, could you give a very warm City of Hope welcome to Charlotte. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Richard. Um, okay, so hands up, who here has seen Lamers? Okay, decent chunk of people, that's good. I have to admit to being a really big fan of Lamers. I saw it at the theatre for the fourth time this summer, which even I am willing to admit is probably excessive. Um, but the reason I'm bringing up Lamers is because it is an amazing story. It's not just great music. Highly recommend going, but it's an amazing story. 
And it starts with the main character, Valjean, being released from prison after 19 years. But he's released with these parole papers that mean he can't get work, he can't find anywhere to live, he can't get food, and he is desperate. Eventually, a bishop takes pity on him and takes him into his home. He feeds him, he gives him somewhere to sleep. But as I said, Valjean is absolutely desperate. So in the middle of the night, he steals a load of the silver from the dinner table and runs away. Almost inevitably, he's picked up by the police and dragged back to the bishop. And this is where something absolutely incredible happens. The bishop would have been well within his rights to say, this bloke stole from me, throw him in jail. But he doesn't. He goes along with Valjean's story and says, oh yeah, no, the silver was a gift. And not only that, he actually gives him the rest of the silver that Valjean hadn't stolen. So he's not only keeping him out of prison, he's also giving him a massive present, like huge present, worth so much money we can't really imagine it. And there are very many ways in which we are like Valjean. We've been caught red-handed so many times, doing things that displease God, we hurt each other, and we have no way of keeping ourselves out of jail. And we need something to help save us. 500 years ago, the church did believe in a doctrine of grace. But for them, grace was something that God gave you that helped you to help yourself. They believed that grace would help you to change your attitude or to change your behavior. And in that way, you could probably earn your way out of jail. You could earn your way back into God's favor. But Luther disagreed with this, and therefore we now have a different view, sola gratia, grace alone. And as you'll have figured out by now, alone is the really key word here. I'm going to attempt an analogy, so bear with me. Imagine that it's 7 p.m., you're in the office, and you have a huge deadline, massive project, it's really important, and it's due at 9 a.m. the next day. Now, to be honest, you've been procrastinating a bit. This could never apply to me. Uh, you've been procrastinating a bit, so it's kind of your fault that you're not going to meet this deadline. There's no way you can get all the work done. But you're going to try. You're going to do your absolute best. A colleague might take pity on you on their way out the door and go and put on a big pot of coffee because coffee can help you. It can help you stay awake. It can help you pay attention. But... Coffee's not going to solve the problem. You've still got to do the project. You've still got to do the work and somehow fit a huge amount of work into the next 14 hours. That's quite similar to the medieval view of grace. The coffee is something that helps us, but it doesn't fix the problem. Imagine another scenario where your colleague doesn't hand you a pot of coffee. Instead, your colleague hands you the project. It's done, it's printed, it's bound, it's perfect. In fact, it's done to a much higher standard than you could have done if you'd worked on it really diligently for six months. Um, in fact, it's so good, you're probably going to get promoted. <laughs> this is grace. This person has solved your problem for you. You've done nothing to earn it. You don't deserve it. It's completely free. It is completely unmerited favor. And the great thing is that we get this from God, but not just digging us out of a hole we've gotten ourselves into at work, but digging ourselves out of the biggest hole. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God takes dead people and makes them alive. If we think about Lazarus in uh, John's Gospel, he had been dead for three days before Jesus showed up at the funeral. He was rotting. There is nothing that Lazarus could have done to make himself come alive again. His friends could have been there with yummy coffee and the smell of bacon sandwiches and pouring Lucozade down his throat, and nothing would have happened. He needed Jesus to come and do that for him. And that's what Jesus does for us. We deserve death, but we get life. And not only that, God throws in massive gifts too. We get all of these blessings from God, our homes, our families, our food, jobs. There's nothing that we've done to earn God's grace and salvation through, through his grace. There's nothing that we've done to earn the gifts that he gives us. And there's nothing that we can do in our lives to make grace work better. We can't pretend grace is coffee and think, oh, you know, it's going to help me get there. No, we can't do anything. God has done it all. We don't deserve the good things that we get from God. It isn't fair that we get them, but for those Reliant K fans out there, the beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. Um, thank you. And over to Ruth, who's going to talk about faith. Okay, so faith alone. <coughs> We've already heard Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and it is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. It is a gift. So I'm going to explain faith alone through using two of all of our favourite subjects, religion and maths. So there's a slide coming up here. And the church at the time, Charlotte kind of point, uh, touched on this, the church at the time was believing that having a belief, a faith in Jesus, but with that and together with that, working and doing good things and your own merit resulted in being made right with God, justification, and that's what made you saved. So that's the position that the church was in. But Luther was saying, going to the next slide, the most accurate representation of what it what the scripture I just quoted to you is it is by faith we are, I mean it is by grace we've been saved through faith and it's not of ourselves it's not of works it is a gift of God it's a gift and so faith alone means that we're justified means that we're made right with God means that we are saved and as a result of this as a result of this relationship we can't help but do something in response. So a way to explain this is a story Luther came up with was of a pauper who married a prince. And the moment she married the prince, he absorbed her debt. He absorbed her inadequacy. She became royal. Her status changed immediately. Her legal status and her relationship status changed immediately. However, she felt, she may have felt, not felt that she'd become royalty, and she may have thought that she wasn't royal, but the truth is she was royal and her status had changed. And of course that's true of us. The, one of the 
most famous Bible verses, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's about belief. And as soon as we believe in Jesus, we enter into a relationship with him and our status is changed. He takes our debt, he takes our sin, he takes our inadequacy and we gain his righteousness, his right standing with God, all of his wealth. And that is what faith is, and that is why we are saved. You can also explain it through the legal system. And I'm a probation officer, and I happen to work in a court. And a few months ago, I interviewed a man who is an accountant in his late 50s. And over a period of time, he stole a significant amount of money from his employer. And right near the beginning of the interview, he said to me, the thing is, I'm a Christian. And how can I call myself a Christian when I've gone and done something like this? So I continued the interview, and um, towards the end, I came back to it, and I said, I happen to know a bit about Christianity, and I happen to know that your faith and your salvation is based on, not based on what you've done, but is based on what Jesus has done. And I was reminded of that, uh, there's a verse in Before the Throne of God, Uh, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look to see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And I went on to this man and I said to him, you know, you've got to come back to court and you've got to face the judge. And he is going to sentence you for what you've done. But the amazing thing is, when you standing there, you can think, when you stand before God as your judge, because of your faith in Jesus, because of your relationship with Jesus, he looks at you and he sees Jesus and he sees that you are adequate, you are justified, you are made right, your sin is absorbed by Jesus and you are free. And that is how you are a Christian and that is how you can preach the gospel of Jesus because you know the freedom. And as a result of that, How can we not be moved? How can we not live our lives to tell people about this freedom? It is not surprising that the church is at the forefront of and was at the beginning of the health service, of prisons, actually, of caring for the homeless. It still is there for the marginalised, the vulnerable, the needy. We are there in the community. Our church and the church offers food bank, CAP. We're there running community groups. And individually and as a group of people it is our faith that makes us move it is it's the grace and the faith together but faith alone I want to finish with a quote that says we are saved by faith alone but the faith that saves is never alone we are saved by faith alone but the faith that saves us is never alone I'm handing on to the mighty God listen What an amazing day this morning that we can go through five preachers. (laughs) But then you don't give a Tanzanian microphone and tell him to preach or to say something in five minutes. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anyway, 
it's really good to be here and just to see what actual church have come from for the last 500 years. And when I was looking through this, I was just asking myself, was it not church all about Christ and Christ alone? And what did really go wrong to the point where reformation has to happen? And as been studying global politics and international relations, I've been reading quite a lot about reformation. But the funny thing, they don't really talk about Jesus' side of it. Um, reformation was inevitable. Because if as a church you take Christ out of church, that becomes something which you cannot give it a name. Because Christ and Christ alone is the center of the church. He's the one, he's an architect of the church. So if you decide, okay, Jesus, you don't have anything to do with this church, I don't know what you call the organization. And why reformation? Why people, they needed to reform the church? Why this happened? One of the things that really fascinated when I was reading about reformation is that because church is God's idea, he can do with it anything he wants when he sees that church is not going right. And one of the things that led to reformation is that Jesus was closed outside of the church. So reformation, one of the things as we have been going through all these souls, um, Christ alone was one of the things that was very important that we're going to go back to the basics of that. We look at Jesus as the center of everything, praying through Jesus, not through Pope. Going to church knowing that we have salvation through Jesus and not through any other mediator. And I think that is the, that is, that is the reason for the church. Because you can't have a church where you have some sort of mediator in between because Jesus has done it all. People, they were furious because you have, when they, come to, when they came to realize actually there's no point for me to pay or to buy a ticket so I can go, so my sins can be forgiven, People, they were shocked. Why have we been in this situation for this many years? And for your information, not everyone was able to buy the tickets. Some people, they were extremely poor. So the rich and people who have got money, they are the ones who could buy tickets, intelligence. So that means if you're poor, you keep, you die in your sin. But on the other side, you know, Jesus has already paid for your sins. But this was kept hidden, especially when the Bible was only read by people who understood Latin. So, Reformation was about Jesus. There are other many things that happened during Reformation. But for me, the center of each and everything that happened during the Reformation, was about Jesus. To bring Jesus 
to his own church and let him exercise his authority on his own church. To let people to go through him to see the Father. And that is the core foundation of the church. And I'm convinced that if the church goes wrong way again, Jesus will lead another reformation. Because the church is his, is his own idea. Christ is the source of forgiveness. And people, they want forgiveness. Not by buying some indulgence so they can be forgiven. They just wanted to go there and have direct access to Jesus. And they missed this. So reformation was needed. Jesus is the source of life. And without him, no one really can get to the Father or can connect to the Father. Pope or your religious priest cannot connect you with the Father. Only Jesus, and as I say, Christ alone is the one who can do that. And that's why when that happened, the church started to flourish. And today, me and you, we are singing here and jumping up, up and down because we were given that freedom back. It's no work plus your faith that gives you salvation. Is Christ alone. And that makes church become a very different from any other thing that you might think of. As you might live here today, just remember that reformation was all about Christ and Christ alone. God bless you. And now, Patricia is going to come and tell you about living for the glory of God. Praise God. Amen. It's really amazing listening to four preachers and hearing everything that everyone's talked about. The scriptures, faith, grace, faith, and Christ alone. And what does this all mean? I'm, I'm emotional, not because it's the first time I've heard it, but sitting down hearing it all together, it just brings to focus why we are here, why we are saved. It's not about having nice clothes. It's not about living well. It's not about being happy physically. It's knowing that there is a God in heaven who had a plan from day one, executed that plan, and made us beneficiaries. This is why everything is to his glory. We have no part in it. There's nothing we've done. Either to merit it or to enable it or to finish it. He started it, he's doing it, and he's finishing it. So what is glory, I thought to myself, what is glory? Glory is something that is radiant, something that catches your eye. Every day the sun rises, every day the sun sets. But there are some days you look up and you think, wow, that's glorious. That is what God is like. God is wow. You, you just imagine, he sat down and he chose to make the world. He just chose. He made the world. Then he made man and he gave man breath. And then man messed up. And he said, okay, I'll fix it, no problem. And he fixed it. And he says, you don't have to pay anything, just come. And you have come, and you still mess up, and he still forgives. And beyond it all, he has an end plan. He says, I'm bringing you home. I'm going to make a new world, and you will come back and reign with me. Wow. 
That's an amazing thing to know. And it just makes that, when you say to his glory alone, it makes sense to me. Who else would you give glory to? I mean, who? I can't think of anyone. Just think who? He made the whole world. He saved us. He keeps saving us. He keeps enabling us. And then to make it all interesting, he says, I will not share my glory with anyone. He actually says so twice. He said, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will share my glory with no one. So essentially, we have a good command not to give his glory to anyone. Not to man. Not to that person that was your benefactor. Not to that doctor that saved your life. Everyone, including us, are tools in his hand. If God does not enable a man, he cannot help you. A friend once said to me, and I, I remember that thing, you wake up every morning and you thank God. Sometimes you think, oh, I woke up because I set my alarm. And he said, put an alarm beside the dead man. <laughs> if you can wake him up. No. Psalm 3 says, I lie down and sleep and wake up because that, O oh Lord, sustains me. It's God. Amen. Everything God said, he made for his glory. He says in Isaiah 43, you are my people whom I've created for my glory. So what is glory? What is this about this? We said glory is about radiance, something that makes you say, wow. So I think glory, you no know, recognizing the glory of God is about saying wow to God. Every time something happens, God, wow. Thank you, Lord. You no, know, it says in Psalm 50, I think it's um, verse 23 or so, that he that offered praise glorifies me. He that offers praise glorifies me. If you want to glorify God, offer praise. Offer thanksgiving. Give thanks. Be grateful. Drop the entitlement culture. I deserve this because I'm a child. No, you don't. No. Everything every day is a new gift. Everything every day is a blessing. There's nothing, I mean, I've been a believer for, God, that, that tells my age. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> I've been for a long time, but, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't entitle me to anything that God has done. It's his choice. It's his love. It's his, it's his grace. It's just him being kind to me. So every day, I should have to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you keep doing. I'm grateful, Lord God. I stop, I stop, I stop claiming. And I start being grateful all the time, Lord. And then giving God, God the glory also means that we do everything for his sake. Paul wrote, and Lord, in the gospel it's also written, whatsoever you do, do as unto him. Do it because of him. Do it to please him. Let it be that I'm not doing it. Sometimes we get so caught up in the word system that teaches us to aspire to be competitive and to be the best that sometimes we forget why. Why do I want to be the best? It could be I want to get more money. could be. It could be I want fame, reputation, renown. Many reasons. But the Bible says, no, do it because of God. Do it so that God will be glorified that you have used your talents right. Do it so that men will give praise to God. In Matthew, it says, let your light so shine that men will see and give glory to your Father. This is why it's to the glory of God. This is why we give thanks. This is why we rejoice. I want to invite us this morning. If you have one reason, only one reason to be grateful, just one, to be grateful, eh? just stand up and say, God, thank you. 
Wow, God. Wow. You are so good. I'm inviting you. Have a stand. Think about what God has done. Just the one thing. Oh, no, honestly, stand up. Come on. Let's stand up. <laughs> Just give God a wow this morning. Think about one thing and say, wow, you are great, oh God. You are amazing. You are so wonderful, Jehovah. Oh, God, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Oh, God, I thank you. Father, I just want to thank you because, Lord, you deserve it all. Thank you, Lord. Okay, I'm gonna, we're going to call the band up now. I think we've got plenty of things to worship God for, right? Okay. Um, just, just before we finish, I just want to point out a couple of things. One, um, the Roman Catholic Church was very different to what it is now. And we might have some disagreements with certain things, but I send my kids to a Roman Catholic school and they preach the gospel in English to them. It's incredible. And God's doing an amazing work there. So just wanted to say that. Secondly, if you wanted to look at any more in, in depth into what we've said, there's a, there's a site called the Gospel Coalition, and they've done this amazing thing where you can go on a, a course and get basically just do, you, you don't get a qualification for it, but you can listen to loads of lectures and stuff about the Reformation, and I would really highly recommend that. It's really good. Um, but I'd just love us just to respond in just worshipping. Everyone's got different things that would have been a highlight there. They're all highlights to me. Um, but let's just worship God. Let's thank him. I'm sure there'll be a couple of words coming at some point um, of encouragement. So. <laughs>